Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Sharon Bay, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Dr. Ted Dynan. Dr. Dynan is a professor of psychiatry at University College Cork in Ireland and is one of the lead investigators in the APC Microbiome Ireland Research Centre. Today, we will be discussing the role of the microbiome gut-brain axis in mental health. Let's get into today's conversation. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning and good afternoon to you in Ireland. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so first, uh, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your work and your research? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'm a psychiatrist clinically. Um, I've always done research, both preclinical research from animals and work in humans. So I'd regard myself, I suppose, as a translational researcher. Um, my background, um, I went to med school in Cork, but I was out of it for well over, over 20 years before I came back here again. Um, I worked in New York for a while in electrophysiology, um, then in London. My first kind of academic, proper academic post was in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, and then I moved back to London, where I was head of clinical neurosciences at Barts on the London Medical School. Um, and um, with uh, following a somewhat circuitous route, I returned to Cork, back to my roots. Uh, and I've been here for the last 17 years or so. Um, if almost to ask me what am I interested in from a research perspective, I, I'm, I'm primarily interested in the, in the biology of stress. And... I've worked in that area. I suppose I'm interested in depression, which is often, not always, but is often stress-driven. And um, I, I've worked in that area for most of my academic career. Um, I, got in, I, I was interested in the brain-gut axis early on in my career when I was working in Trinity College in Dublin. A gastroenterologist, mine, he's still a very good friend of mine, persuaded me that it was an important area of consideration. And uh, we published a few papers there. To be honest, ah, nobody really cited them very much. Um, they were kind of, I think they were largely forgotten about. But about 16 or 17 years ago, I came back to Cork and um, I looked around the campus to see if there was something that, you know, would be good to collaborate with. And, and microbiology in Cork is, is very, very strong. I mean, there are some microbiologists and they're clearly on top you know, global rankings. So I was involved in setting up the APC, which is now called APC Microbiome Ireland. And it really, I suppose, what, what I and what my friend and colleague John Cryan do is we look at the brain-gut microbiota axis. So what makes this research different is one important component of the biology of stress is the gut microbiota, that collection of microbes within the intestine that frankly, up until 16 or 17 years ago, it, it was largely ignored. I mean, when I was a medical student, people spoke about commensal bacteria in the intestine. And by that, they meant bacteria that did us no harm. We fed them and that was about it. You know, I think our research and research from a number of other groups really has illustrated that the gut microbiota is very much part of our stress system 
obviously as a psychiatrist i'm interested in depression so i i have published papers on how that system is dysregulated or altered in patients with depression i've also published papers on kind of by the, a sideline interest in irritable bowel syndrome so i've published in that area as well but depression is really what i think i know best could you explain in greater depth uh, the workings of the microbiome gut brain axis sure sure um, we have about a kilo and a half of bacteria in our intestine. Now, they're not the only microbes in our intestine. Clearly, we have viruses and we have fungi. You know, so we have we have different microbes, but bacteria in bulk are the biggest group of microbes. And it's estimated we have about a kilo and a half in the adult intestine. And those microbes produce a large number of molecules that are our brains and other organs in our body require. So as one of the areas of research that I'm in very interested in and I've published in is how do those microbes actually communicate with the brain? You know, the brain does send signals to the gut. We know that it does it via, I suppose, via the vagus nerve and also the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Cortisol, which is the main stress hormone in humans, is released in response to stress, and that does impact on the gut. But the gut sends signals to the brain in a variety of ways. Um, signals come down from the brain via the vagus nerve, but they go from the gut to the brain via the vagus nerve as well. And we've shown that if the vagus nerve is severed, that certain microbes cannot communicate with the brain. Now, there are other routes of communication as well. Microbes can produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate and propionate, and they get into the bloodstream and travel to the brain where they can impact on brain function. Another important you know, route of communication, which you know, your listeners would be familiar with, is tryptophan, the amino acid, is the building block of serotonin. Now, serotonin is essential for maintaining normal mood, sleep patterns, eating patterns. It's a very essential neurotransmitter in the human brain, serotonin. And um, now serotonin is made from tryptophan and we actually have very limited storage capacity for tryptophan in the human brain. So we need a constant supply of tryptophan going into the bloodstream and traveling to the brain. And it used to be thought that all the tryptophan came from our diet and, and certainly some of it does. But what we've shown, um, and you know, I think it is an important observation, is that microbes, particularly bifidobacteria, are capable of producing tryptophan and increasing tryptophan levels in the bloodstream, which may mean that you know certain, I don't like the term probiotics, but most people have heard of the term, certain probiotic bifidobacteria can produce tryptophan and that will obviously travel to the brain and have an impact on serotonin levels in the brain, which can be quite important to somebody, particularly if somebody is prone or suffering from depression. Um, so there, there, there are some of the roots of kind of communication between the, the brain and, and, and the gut. And so you mentioned that uh, your research focus has largely been on the biology of stress. Um, could you tell us about your research, particularly with depression and the role of the microbiome gut-brain axis? Right. Well, you know, there are a number of markers of biomarkers 
that are recognized internationally in, in, in depression. Um, and, you know, those biomarkers have been replicated, you know, by various groups here in Europe and in Canada by, you know, Lakshmi Atham in, in Vancouver. Vancouver is a very good friend of mine. He's head of, head of psychiatry in Vancouver and, and Lakshmi would have, you know, done a lot of work in those areas as well. So two of the consistent biomarkers that are observed on both sides of the Atlantic in relation to depression would be high cortisol levels. When, when people are severely depressed, they have, their cortisol levels are high. The other observation is that the, if you look at inflammatory molecules in the bloodstream, they're elevated in people with depression. Now, the most important inflammatory molecules are the cytokines, so cytokines like IL-1, IL-6, um, are, are, are elevated in depression. What we know, I mean, they, they're, they're, you know, most people who deal with severe depression in the biology would accept that they are reasonable markers of depression. What, what my group have shown, and a number, there's one or two other groups have shown it as well in recent years, is that the gut microbiota is also altered in depression. We have increases in, in pro, sorry, in, in depression, the gut microbiota loses diversity. There are, there's less diversity, there's less richness in terms of bacteria in the intestine and people with depression. Now, the gut microbiota is regulated by many different things, obviously. Uh, diet is important as well, but even when we control for diet and exercise and all those important things, the gut microbiota in depressed patients lacks diversity. So you seem to have high levels of cortisol, you have a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines in the plasma, and the actual microbiota, the collection of bacteria in particular, loses diversity in patients um, with, with major depression. And I know your research, um, there was transplants Indeed. healthy, and yeah, could you speak on that a bit? Yeah, certainly. This was a, you know, sometimes one does a study where one expects a negative result and this was one I had the idea look we know that the depressed patients have less diverse microbiota so I thought what would happen if we gave rats the microbiota of a depressed patient or a healthy subject and to, to my surprise we found that when we gave the rats the microbiota of a healthy subject they, they were exactly normal, their behavior was normal, their biochemistry was normal, immunology, endocrinology, all entirely normal. But when they were given the microbiota of a depressed individual, their behavior became very abnormal. They, they, they displayed no interest in, in doing the things that rats normally enjoy doing. Um, their metabolism of tryptophan, that building block of serotonin, became abnormal, and certain inflammatory molecules were increased in their bloodstream. So it was though we were transferring the phenotype of depression to the rodent by transferring the gut microbiota. Um, it was the first time I think that had been done. I mean, there, it's been replicated actually at least two or three times since we published our paper. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think what it does, I, I'm not 
really a person who would say, look, the microbiota is, is the be-all and end-all of depression. But I do think that the microbiota plays an important role in the overall pathophysiology. And, you know, it needs to be borne in mind. And, and you know, I suppose if anyone's suffering from depression, they might say, well, how, how, what can I do that would be of benefit to my, my microbiota if that's part of the problem of depression? And, I, you know, what I tell my own patients is pretty simple. I, I, I tell them that, you know, the most extensively studied diet in the world is a Mediterranean diet. And in terms of the impact on our, our gut microbiota, it has the most beneficial impact. You know, now look, one doesn't have to use the term Mediterranean diet, but certainly a diet that is rich in fruit, in vegetables, in nuts, in fermented food, in fish intake, and really avoiding too much red meat in the diet. Um, you know, so so like, what what are the components in in those foods that I've just mentioned? Well. They contain a lot of polyphenols, and polyphenols are good for our microbiota, and they're probably good for our brain directly as well. Polyunsaturated fatty acids we get from fish, and really, you know, even though I live on an island, it's amazing the number of patients of mine who say, oh God, I hate fish, would never eat that, you know? Seems ridiculous to me, but anyway, um, that, that, that's the way a lot of my patients act. You know, so I, I do think that if one is suffering from depression, one should move towards that type of a diet. I mean, it's been recognized for 30, over 30 years that people on that type of a diet have less depression than people who are on a Northern European or a North American diet. A traditional North American diet is associated with more depression. Now, um, of course, people say, well, look, the Mediterranean diet, they live in a nice sunny climate. Why wouldn't they be less? <laughs> but that's not really the answer, because even if you're living in a non-sunny part of the world and you're on a Mediterranean diet, you're likely to be less prone to depression. And there is increasing evidence that if somebody is depressed and suffering from episodes of depression, that switching to a Mediterranean diet does help the mood state. So it prevents depression, number one, or it may help prevent depression, and it may help to alleviate the symptoms if somebody is depressed. Of course, the other important thing, which acts both on our microbiotas, but has other important impacts as well, is aerobic exercise. I mean, the most potent antidepressant that's out there is aerobic exercise. And, you know, getting out there and running or swimming or cycling on a regular basis is the best thing one can do for one's mood. And it's amazing the number of people who don't. I mean, you know, I have patients come in to me and they're 25 and I tell them to exercise and they come back two or three weeks later and they say, yeah, I was, yeah, I've been walking a mile a day. And I think, for God's sake, I mean, when you're only 25, a mile a day is for a 95-year-old grandmother. It's not flipping 25-year-olds. It's a joke. And yet, you know, you need to have it. It needs to be vigorous and it needs to be aerobic exercise. The science on gut health is having this moment in popular science media right now. And so are there risks involved in all of this hype? The hype around the gut microbiota and so forth? I think there are. You know, it needs to be led by science. 
you know, I, what, what, the, when I begun doing research with bacteria that were defined as probiotic, I mean, 16, 17 years ago, I kind of made the decision at that stage that I would only publish in fairly high impacting journals because there's an enormous amount of loose science out there. You know, you look up things like leaky gut syndrome and all sorts of things and go on this fad diet or go on that fad diet. And um, there's an enormous amount of, uh, of poor quality science. And of course, the problem, one of the big problems as well, is the, supplement, the supplements industry gets away with murder, particularly where the FDA don't seem to regulate them, in my opinion, to any significant extent. So they can make all sorts of spurious claims. You know, they, they, you know, they, they can make claims that are outlandish and seem to get away with it. Um, so, of course, if you're a company, you can get away with making claims without doing any science. There's not an awful lot of incentive to do science if you can make the statements anyway. Um, so I, you know, I, so I, I, I think that, look, it's a new science. Remember, the first papers were only out about 16 or 17 years ago in this area of the brain-gut microbiota axis. Um, it, it, it's, it's a new area. There's a lot of preclinical data out there in, in animals, and some of it is very, very good. What we lack, and it, look, it, it's not surprising that we lack it. It takes time for things to catch up. We need more human intervention studies. So we need more studies looking at the impact in humans. Um, and that takes time and, and I, you know, it will, with the time we'll see more human data. Um, but right now we have loads of preclinical data and really not enough human data. And, and that human data that's out there, and I certainly think it's true of my studies, they're relatively small. They may be placebo controlled, but they're not, well enough designed. I mean, they're not big, you know, look, a pharmaceutical company can afford to do a 200 patient study. You know, I'm, I'm funded by grants from Science Foundation Ireland or whoever. They, they, they understandably, our studies are relative. They, I always describe our human intervention studies as preliminary. I don't regard them as more than preliminary because we don't have 180 subjects or 200 subjects or whatever, you know. Uh, do you think you can make a uh, make an estimate of the timeline of when we'll get to those human studies? Well, I think that I'm encouraged by the fact that there that some of the bigger companies now are beginning to kind of get more interested in this field, um, and you know, big farm and big food by its very nature is rather cautious, you know, and um, you know, so so they've been. I won't say being slow. I think that, I don't think they're slower in this area than they are in any other area. Um, you know, but I I, I I do think that big companies are, are becoming interested in this area because there are lots of papers. I mean, there have been papers. You know, with covers in Nature and in Science from various groups, and you know, big papers. You know, in in all the top journals. So it's not surprising that that big pharma and big food as well are kind of converging into this one space. I mean, there may be a kind of a competition between big food and big pharma, but it really, to do the studies that are necessary to prove beyond doubt that interventions are going to be a benefit to patients or to, to, to people requires large scale trials. And that will involve 
you know, multi-million dollar studies, and that can only be done by big companies. And I read that you, in fact, coined the term psychobiotics. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I, I described it a few years ago in a, in a paper I had in biological psychiatry, and I kind of put forward the concept, and then it seems to have kind of caught on in, 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 in the literature. I, it was, I, I, I was at a meeting, it was a Sunday morning, and Dublin was the European capital of science that year, whatever year it was, I can't remember. And it was a Sunday morning and it, it, I was supposed to be talking and I was in the audience and I was bored stiff on a Sunday morning thinking, what the hell did anyone put me down to talk on a Sunday morning for? Um, and I kind of came up with the idea. I thought, well, you know what, there are probably bacteria out there that are beneficial from a mental health perspective. And yet, you know, we don't really cluster them together. We don't really define them. We don't, you know, and so, so what I've done since then really is, first of all, I defined what these psychobiotics were. And then I put forward a number of proposals as to how we could identify them. Because like there are, you know, there's over a thousand strains of bacteria in the human intestine, you know, so how can you pick the ones that might be beneficial and the ones that are going to be of no use at all? So we have published, you know, quite extensively on, you know, algorithms that might be used to distinguish those bacteria that might be beneficial. What is the future looking like for mental health interventions, treatments, mental illness interventions, treatments, informed now by this research on the microbiome brain access? Well, what I will, what I hope personally is that over the next few years, we'll see psychobiotics, live bacteria emerge that are clearly beneficial in milder forms of depression and anxiety. I don't think that they're going to be as effective as maybe antidepressants in the more severe forms of depression, but you know, the milder forms of depression are often the worst form because they're, they're more common. I mean, a lot of people's mild forms of depression, they wouldn't consider taking an antidepressant. They might suffer mild anxiety. They wouldn't consider taking, some, you know, a, a, a chemical for treating that particular problem. And often gaining access to a psychology service can be, um, it can be expensive um, and, you know, are, are not readily available for some people. So I'm reasonably optimistic that there are bacteria out there now that people are working with that will be beneficial in treating milder forms of depression. Now, of course, the question becomes as well, we had a paper in, the, in Lancet Neurology, they're recently looking at the gut microbiota in neurological diseases. And I suppose the question is, will the brain gut microbiota access be a target for things like Parkinson's disease and there's a paper just recently out um, from a Chinese group, um, I think it's a Chinese group. It's a very interesting study. They basically took patients with quite marked depression, or sorry, Parkinson's disease, and they did a fecal microbiota transplant. And they found that in those subjects in whom the transplant took, that the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease and the psychological symptoms both improved. So, you know, you could see this, it mightn't be probiotics, that's too simple, too simplistic an approach, and I'm not thinking that FMT or fetal microbiota transplantation is the answer for all things either, but I do think that we see targeted therapies that may be effective in things like Parkinson's disease in the future also.
You've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.